Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you, as always, for being with us and for spreading the word. We are indeed the voice of the voiceless. Talking about voices, now listen, stay with me. I have something very, very, very special at the end of this program. A voice that has been commissioned by King Charles to sing in the coronation concert. You'll need to turn the volume of your TV down or the voice will lift the roof off. Television with a difference. Well, the August debate goes on, there has been a major intervention today with the former Prime Minister Paul Keating arguing that the Albanese government has made the worst foreign policy decision by a Labor government since the attempted introduction of conscription during World War I. He accused the Foreign Minister Penny Wong and the Defence Minister Richard Miles of setting Australia down a dangerous path. Mr Keating said, quote, every Labor Party branch member will wince when they realise that the party we all fight for is returning to our former colonial martyr Britain to find our security in Asia. 256 years after Europeans, he said, grabbed the continent from its indigenous people. Mr Keating said that a contemporary Labor government is shunning security in Asia for security in and within the Anglosphere. Now, several points need to be made. Firstly, Mr Keating is no dunce. He's a former prime minister with very specific views. He's always well-researched and presents his case forcefully. The second point relates to the first, and it's the most important. On virtually no issue in this country, and in recent times, that means climate change, vaccination, immigration, and now foreign policy, nowhere can you get a debate without anger and vitriol being poured over those who may disagree. Tell me about it. Mr Keating deserves to be heard. But there is no forum in this country to hear contested views. The parliament's useless. One side's got to shut up while the other person says what he likes. Mr Keating's raised an important point here, that there should be comprehensive debate when buckets of money and national security are at stake. After all, this is all in today's money, about $400 billion, armoured vehicles, frigates and combat aircraft, nuclear powered. But if we happen to have nuclear reactors on boats, why don't we have nuclear power for industry and cities and homes? Work that out. But this is big money. The hope of the side, I think, is this Defence Minister Richard Miles, the man who has convinced the Americans to provide three, and if necessary, up to five, Virginia-class nuclear submarines. Now, I don't think Paul Keating would have any problem with that. But as I said last night, this still requires legislation through the American Congress. America haven't yet legislated to approve the transfer of their nuclear technology. The interesting person here, as I said, is this Richard Miles, about whom not much is known. This bloke is also no dope. He's 55, he's the Deputy Prime Minister, that is, Deputy Leader of the Labor Party. But interestingly, his father was a former headmaster of Trinity Grammar School in Melbourne, and his mother, was Victoria's first Equal Opportunity Commissioner and later Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. Now, Richard Miles has been a Labor man since he went to university, but he was educated at Geelong Grammar, then the University of Melbourne, and he graduated with a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Laws with Honours. From all of that, almost amusingly, 
He became assistant secretary in the ACTU, but now he's deputy prime minister. But he's the man who will bear the brunt of turning this foreign policy promise into a reality. The one other point here is where further debate is needed about finding a suitable site for the disposal of nuclear waste generated, generated by these AUKUS submarines. This debate about nuclear waste is one that's run into many dead ends. I remember interviewing the former Prime Minister, the late Bob Hawke, about this 18 years ago. In a speech then, in September 2005, Mr Hawke called on the ALP to abandon its policy on uranium, and importantly, his words, to promote Australia as a repository for nuclear waste. Mr Hawke rightly said in that interview with me, quote, Australia has the geologically safest places in the world for the storage of waste. He further said, and I quote, what Australia should do in my judgment as an act of economic sanity and environmental responsibility is to say, we will take the world's nuclear waste. He rightly said, Bob Hawke at the time, that such an initiative would give Australia a huge source of income. I remember at the time we were saying then we could have paid off the national debt. He said, Mr Hawke, we could revolutionise the economics of Australia if we did this. Well, he returned to the subject on February 9, 2015, when he backed citing a nuclear waste dump in South Australia. Ironically, at the time, Mr Hawke also said, quote, the Labor Party has shown that it has a degree of flexibility in the nuclear debate, particularly with the export of uranium, unquote. He said in 2015, global warming is a very real threat. I remember both of us disagreeing on that. But then he said, nuclear power generation is an important part of dealing with that challenge. With storage, if we could make it safer for the world, it would be a win-win situation, unquote. Ironically, Mr. Hawke added in 2015, and I quote, ignorance is the enemy of good policy, unquote. That ignorance remains with us today. I was very critical last night of Premier Perrottet and the Liberal Party in New South Wales. I find it offensive that the Premier would say in relation to his brother missing from an upper house inquiry that his family shouldn't be brought into the election. And then on Sunday, he parades his family behind him arguing in what can only be described as a stunt that he was, quote, thinking of our kids. The very children behind him are inheriting as a result of his government, a mountain of debt. And if the Perrottet, Keane, Bowen energy policies ever materialise, they're headed for energy poverty in a state with some of the richest raw material resources in the world. As I said, and I'll talk to Mark Latham shortly, those same kids are being betrayed with an education system where indoctrination takes preference over education. And the Perrottet government has done nothing to arrest this dilemma. In fact, it's not even been discussed in the election campaign. But then the whole focus of this campaign seems to have been on Western Sydney, the very part of New South Wales that has suffered from lockdowns. And if you argued against them, as I did, you were cancelled. Yet only in the last week we learn of the first definitive study of the efficacy of masks by the Cochrane Library in Britain, which is often described as the world's best resource for evaluating healthcare interventions. Just as the evidence is emerging, if indeed it wasn't already there, that lockdowns have no epidemiological justification. The lead author of this definitive study is one Tom Jefferson from Oxford University, who summed up the findings by saying, quote, there is just no evidence that masks make any difference, unquote. The people of Western Sydney were locked down. Kids denied their education. 
kids living with traumatized parents whose businesses were shut down. The emotional and psychological damage to these children cannot be calculated. And Dominic Perrottet is saying, vote for us. It's like telling the executioner at the last minute that he'll be a beneficiary in the will of the bloke whose life he's about to take. Dominic Perrottet said that borrowing cash and privatizing assets was the key to funding the state's $110 billion infrastructure pipeline. He then has subsequently been challenged several times about the possible privatization of Sydney Water. He has emphatically denied the likelihood of that happening. Yet now, secretive documents were released yesterday that the Perrottet government commissioned consultants, Clayton Utes and KPMG in 2021, to explore the funding of a water recycling plant at Kemp's Creek, with options including, quote, a project structure with private investors. Indeed, the document from Clayton Newt said, quote, such a structure is similar to other privatisations, unquote. But in the election campaign, the Premier has repeatedly ruled out privatising Sydney Water. You see, this is my concern about the Liberal Party. The true Liberal Party doesn't exist. It just serves factions. I had a call from a person on the Central Coast, Uminer, asking me what happened to the government's promise to fix the Woi Woi rail underpass. It's a single lane with only a 2.5 metre clearance, trucks and vans and emergency vehicles can't get through. But Transport for New South Wales released a $150 million plan to fix it up. Since 2016, nothing has happened. Why am I telling you this? I said yesterday this is a case of the boy and the wolf. People can't believe you even when we are telling the truth. It is a terrible reality about the ostensible Liberal government. So while Transport for New South Wales can do nothing about the Woi Woi rail underpass, we learn today that in the busy Oxford Street of Sydney, between Paddington Gates and Taylor Square, the same mob, Transport for New South Wales, David Elliott is the Minister for Transport, Natalie Ward, the Minister for the Metropolitan Roads, and Rob Stokes, the Minister for Cities and Active Transport. There are ministers everywhere, for God's sake, all useless. But they are proposing that four lanes in Oxford Street become two. Why? A new two-way cycle path. I'm sorry, how could anyone in government be worse? The Wallara Liberal councillor, Sean Carmichael, was right on Monday night when he said, if this goes ahead, you'd be navigating the region's roads like, quote, sucking meatloaf through a straw. But this government's got a $77 million proposal for walkways and cycleways. You can't possibly vote for this stuff. And good luck to the students in year three, five, seven and nine who began their NAPLAN test today. But it is the nature of education, isn't it? Which disturbs me that only one age group will pick up a pen. Almost every exam is on a computer. Only the year three writing test is paper-based, but the intended goal of that plan is to assess reading, writing and arithmetic. It seems literacy and numeracy are out the door and computer and keyboard skills are what are actually being tested. They do say that spell check and other supportive writing elements have been disabled, but I'm not sure this is education. And before we go any further, congratulations to Albury on the border between Victoria and New South Wales, 56,000 people. The travel app, What If, have crowned it 2023's top Australian holiday town. Albury number one. The Mayor Kylie King says her town offers the perfect ingredients as a three-day holiday destination, close to the Victorian Alps, the Murray River, 
other historic towns, and they've got their own airport. The top 10 were Albury, Bundaberg, New Norfolk in Tasmania, Port Lincoln, Ballarat, Marimbula, Toowoomba, hello Toowoomba, Dunsborough in WA, Orange, and the beautiful Echuca in Victoria. Question, how many of them have you been to? I think we all need to get out and about and explore our own country. Beautiful holiday destinations. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. All the talk is about submarines and AUKUS, but the very big geopolitical issue is the war in Ukraine. Elements of the Western world continue to pour resources into Ukraine. This includes America, Britain, and to a lesser extent, Australia. Now, axiomatically, if you are supporting Ukraine, as in principle, I guess we all are, as I've said many times, you are also opposing Russia. And if Russia sees itself in difficulty, China comes to its aid. Now, Donald Trump in that speech at Maryland two weeks ago, which I might add was attended by staff of mine here, Donald Trump made the point that he was the presidential candidate to end World War III. He basically said he'd sit these blokes down and in Trump style say, no winner here, you can't have everything. Now remember, as I've said many times, when Trump was president, we heard nothing from the rocket man or Xi or Putin. In the last 48 hours, Donald Trump has answered some questions on Ukraine, arguing that under Biden, self-inflicted wounds and mistakes by America had been made over the past two years. Rightly, Trump said, and I quote, Russia would definitely not have raided and attacked Ukraine if I was your president. In fact, he said, for four years they didn't attack, nor did they have any intention of doing so as long as I was in charge. But he said, the sad fact is that due to a new lack of respect for the US, caused at least partially by our incompetently handled pullout from Afghanistan, and the very poor choice of words by Biden in explaining US requests and intentions. Remember, Trump said, Biden's first statement was that Russia could have some of Ukraine, no problem. So the bloody and expensive assault, said Donald Trump, began and continues to this day. He said, the president must meet with each side, then both sides together and work out a deal. This can easily be done, he said, if conducted by the right president. Both sides are weary and ready to make a deal. The meetings, he said, should start immediately. There is no time to spare, said Donald Trump. The death and destruction must end now. He said, this terrible and tragic war, a war that never should have started in the first place, will come to a speedy end, unquote. Now this all leads to a valid question. What does any scholarly analysis of this war demonstrate? Professor Peter, Frank, Peter Frankopan is the Professor of Global History at Oxford University. He's the author of The Earth Transformed and Untold History. In answering the question, is Putin winning? His conclusion is alarmingly that the world order is changing in Putin's favour. He talks about Moscow's diplomatic mission to build ties that in March last year, 25 African states out of 54 abstained or didn't vote in a UN motion condemning the invasion, despite huge pressure from Western powers. Professor Frankopan argues, quote, their refusal to side clearly with Ukraine was testament to Russia's ongoing diplomatic efforts in the developing world, unquote. The professor then makes reference to the North African countries, 
which have helped Russia offset the economic effect of Western sanctions, citing the fact that Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria and Egypt have all in the last year imported Russian diesel and other refined oils. Then the professor in his argument leaves Africa and comes to Asia, where he argues that a third of the Asian countries declined to condemn Russia in the initial UN vote, as well as Central and Southern America, where the professor says, quote, waves of anti-Western and anti-capitalist sentiment continue to swell, unquote. He makes the point that the idea that it is America and its allies who are the sources of global disruption and instability, he said, that idea is holding sway. In layman's language, for many countries around the world, the West is on the nose. Therefore, there is this sympathy, according to the professor, that Putin is simply standing up to the West. Professor Frankopan reminds us that when Putin addressed his Federal Assembly last week, he referenced Western military interventions in Yugoslavia, Iraq, Libya and Syria. That leads Russia and China, he argues, to keep talking about stability in a world gone mad, even though, as we know, Moscow seeks to further destabilise the world and make it even madder. But to all of that, as the professor says, you add China, which has been buying records amounts of cheap Russian oil and gas and exporting all sorts of machinery to Russia. So the professor asks the question, is Russia losing? As he says, the Ukrainians have fought astonishingly well, but have suffered huge losses. Western leaders, he argues, speak of giving Kiev the tools to finish the job. But his assessment is that, quote, what the coming weeks, months and even years have to offer looks bleak. He asserts that Russia's economy appears strong enough to keep the war going and that his words, quote, Russia will keep throwing untrained recruits into the meat grinder in which three quarters of them die. The professor also reminds us that commentators on Russian TV gleefully make the point that Europeans are freezing to death because of high energy prices or have been forced to eat grasshoppers because of a lack of Russian wheat imports. Now, admittedly, these are sensational comments, but behind them is the hope that Ukraine's supporters are exhausting themselves and that cracks, says the professor, may soon appear in the West's wall of solidarity. Professor Frankopan asserts that as a result of this war, the world order is changing and not in favour of the West. Which brings us back to Trump. Whatever might be said of him, there were no wars during his presidency. There were no body bags and no troops sent into battlefields. His critics describe that as isolationism. His supporters rightly claim it was the product of strong leadership. I've long argued there is a crisis in Western political leadership and the war between Russia and Ukraine is the most ugly, brutal, destructive and abominable manifestation of that. Look, I know at this time in the election cycle, people get tired and they say, look, I don't want to hear about it. I don't like any of them. We need to remember this affects every one of us. Whoever wins on Saturday week affects business, affects households, and of course affects children in the classroom. In the last federal election, today's federal government, the Labor Party got 32.8% of the vote, which means 67% of voters didn't want them. There's been a debate today between the Liberal leader and the Labor leader in New South Wales. 
Why wasn't the One Nation leader, Mark Latham, included? I'll tell you something. On policy and the prosecution of ideas, this man, Mark Latham, in my view, is the best in New South Wales. I said last night, and I'll say it again, there is no Liberal Party, only in name. All we can see is big government, big taxes, and a government entering every crevice of our lives, locking people down during coronavirus, and in spite of many often angry overtures, never once presenting a single sheet of paper that could justify the draconian measures that were being taken. If these people say, vote for me. I said last night that for Liberal supporters who can't find a political home, and indeed for all New South Wales voters who want sensible, values-driven, economically responsible policy, Mark Latham is the person who's covered the length and breadth of New South Wales arguing for just this. This is an election where we've got to put political prejudice aside. Know the risks and vote for someone who will minimise those risks. I'm saying that person is Mark Latham. And he joins me, Mark. Thank you for your time. Were you invited to be part of these debates? No, Alan, the mainstream media, they stick with the duopoly of Labor and Liberal, these tight, old, ineffective parties. And I suppose if I was there, they're worried I'd point out all the failings in school education policy. We've got the fastest falling school academic results in the world. The AEMO prediction that under the policies of both Minns and Perite, rushing to 100% renewable energy, the lights are going to go out in New South Wales. And today, of course, the news that the Keen Energy Plan, supported by Chris Minns and the, and the other Greens, uh, is driving up uh, electricity prices by 15 to 25% for small business on the default pricing and 21% for residential in New South Wales. So these are massive failings of government. And when Minns uh, debates Perite, it's failure versus failure. Yes, that's true. That's true. Just for our viewers, Australia-wide, those figures out today about increases in electricity prices, and this is from the Australian Energy Regulator, 19% in Queensland increase. Where do, where do families get this sort of money from? 21% in South Australia, 23% in New South Wales, and Victoria, 31%. This is about the increase in the cost of wholesale electricity, which is then passed on to the consumer. Mark, you can talk about the war in Ukraine, surely until the cows come home, but the energy policies of Labor and the Coalition, which are almost identical, will just make this worse. Well, it's the war on common sense that's being waged by the Liberals and Labor and the National Party and the Greens. That's the problem, Alan. I mean, we're the only country in the world that has a thing called rewiring the nation. Massive expenses, hundreds of billions of dollars, ultimately, to build renewables in the far western districts of New South Wales. And then the big expense of hooking them into the transmission grid with new corridors and wires, wrecking agricultural land, wrecking country landscape land um, to, to hook into the grid. We're the only ones rewiring the nation. And when you say this to the people overseas, they laugh because the common sense thing in Australia would have been that if you do want to close down the coal-fired power stations, I don't recommend that, but if that's where they're going to go, you've got the people who live on the East Coast, you've got the electricity grid and most of the transmission on the East Coast. If you close down Liddell, if you close down Araring, put in some small modular nuclear reactors, plug them straight back in without all the rewiring the nation expenses for superior power, a baseload 24-7 power, and now we're getting nuclear submarines. I mean, the debate is really over. If Albanese is saying that it's safe to have eight nuclear submarines uh, parked in the Port Kembla Harbour, safe labour seats of Whitlam and Cunningham there in the Illawarra, well, it's safe to have them anywhere. 
they're not on water, on dry land for electricity generation. So um, it's not the war in the Ukraine, it's the war on logic and common sense that's causing us the problems. Yeah, and so to my viewers, I'm just saying, have you heard a politician in this election campaign make that kind of common sense argument? That's my point. We've got to put our biases aside. We desperately need Mark Latham in numbers to be able to stop the rot. I mean, when people say, Mark, look, I'm sick of the election, which they do say, I can understand that, and they say it to me, oh, it's a turn off. What do you say to those people? Well, you won't be sick of it when your lights go out and uh, the school's not operating, the traffic lights aren't working, your, your, your factory's got no electricity, people are losing their jobs. I mean, blackouts, uh, to some extent in Australia, and we've been uh, spoiled because at one time we had the most reliable, affordable electricity on the planet. And they've thrown that away, Matt Keen madness, to try and rebuild the entire electricity system within a decade. They haven't got the um, the, the pumped hydro, the um, uh, gas peaking plant, backup power to support the renewables, so the lights go out. And when the prices go up, you've only got to look at your electricity bill to yes. know that Ke yes. Keen is the villain. Yep. Keen's not only destroyed the Liberal Party, he's destroyed electricity affordability in New South Wales. And these uh, price increases announced today are further evidence of that. Of, as part confirmation of, of everything we've been saying. Now, Mark, Dominic Perrottet launched his campaign with a stack of kids behind him on the platform. I called it a stunt. He said, think of your kids, vote Liberal. How does that sound to you? Well, I feel sorry for those kids because they're part of a generation in New South Wales where because of Keen and Perrottet's uh, fiscal extravagance, driving the budget into over $120 billion of net debt. That's an average uh, for every person in New South Wales, every man, woman and child of $17,000. So each of those kids on the stage, ultimately, and their generation will bear this burden much more than you and me, uh, they're responsible for an average of $17,000 worth of state debt that can only be paid off under Labor and Liberal with higher taxes. They mm. don't do any spending cuts whatsoever. These people are all mm. upside spending, I no cost I, I said that. So I mean, they've each got a liability of $17,000 and Perrottet thinks he's doing them a favour by giving him $400 yeah. a year. Each of those kids would say to you, I'll get rid of the $17,000 yeah. debt hanging around them my debt. neck he's and giving them debt. the 400 bucks. Are these the same kids sitting behind him who face indoctrination, not education in the classroom? Yeah, we've got 17,000, uh, that number again, 17,000 students start high school in New South Wales every year without decent reading skills. They're semi-illiterate. Um, so these are kids that aren't getting the best instruction for reading, writing and numbers in school. They're not uh, necessarily getting the phonics. They're stuck with left-wing uh, fads like uh, whole word literacy. They're getting uh, uh, lessons on why they should hate Australia or uh, the Invasion Day, gender fluidity. I mean, you talk about mental health with young people. Well, tell a boy he's a girl and give him all that anxiety and see how the mental health experts go. Mm. So Perrottet's done nothing about any of these things. He's not the friend of those children who were stage managed, sat, sat there on uh, the stage at Liverpool Catholic Club on Sunday. He's burdened them with debt. He's given them a substandard school education system and are saying, with further borrowed money, is four hundred dollars a year mm. if your parents can mm. match it. Now, and what about really? what, what really? about the think kids? Of the kids. Well, think of something better than that. Yeah, but he said, think of the kids, right? Okay? Think of your kids. What about the kids who still don't have a home to go to following the bushfires of 2019-20 and the Lismore floods of last year? Where do they fit into all this? Think of your kids. Well, think of the kids for housing affordability. Parate hasn't released enough land. 
There's a land shortage in Western Sydney. This region where I live, Alan, has always been the traditional place where young people can get a foot in the door of the housing market, then trade up. They can't even get the foot in the door now. Not enough land released. $100,000 added to the construction costs of a new home in Sydney through all the uh, green environmental requirements, BASICs, uh, biodiversity requirements, uh, habitat studies, $100,000 in green rubbish, putting housing ownership out of the reach of this mm. generation. On mm. top of that, stamp duty, $50,000 up front in Sydney. Uh, the choice of avoiding it should be available to all home buyers, no matter their background. So, you know, these are very important policies yeah. to get housing affordability yeah. moving uh, instead of the perite but policy, which is uh, destroy the great Australian dream. So when he says, think of your kids, okay, that's fine. That's why you and I are arguing all the time. It's because I'm thinking of the kids that I just don't want this outfit continuing on the road that they've taken. Are these the same kids who were locked out of school with draconian responses by a coalition government to coronavirus, denied their education? I mean, are these the same kids, Mark, who had to endure the emotional and psychological trauma of seeing their parents whose businesses went under and who couldn't go to work and weren't allowed to go to work. And indeed, there were guns in the street making sure they didn't move out of their home. The damage done to these kids, are they the kids we're talking about when we say, think of your kids? Yeah, they're the same kids, all of them locked in their bedrooms for three months on end, denied access to their friends, the normal social contact, the uh, wellness of uh, being at school, learning. Uh, the fraternity of being with your mates, uh, all denied that unnecessarily. No school should ever have been uh, shut down. And, and for the kids that didn't have uh, information technology in the home, basically denied any form of learning. So no social contact, uh, lots of uh, physical and mental problems that came out of that. And for some of them, uh, no learning programs at all. Mm. And then, of course, you mentioned debt, but we just should repeat the figures. Last year's budget, a $27 billion spending spree. And on my last count, in this election, over $33 billion of promises during the campaign. Mark, how do you stop this madness? You're talking to the voters now. How do you stop it? Well, uh, we've got to balance the budget and start paying down debt. Um, every single dollar of promises by Men's Imperate in this campaign is a borrowed dollar. And it's those kids who sat on the stage, their generation will have to pay it back and their children as well. So uh, we can't go on like this when the next virus comes or a financial meltdown. How do you fund the next stimulus package? Well, you basically can't because these budgets are so heavily in debt and deficit. Uh, Perite and Mins and Keen have only got one policy, that's spend, spend and spend some more. And we've got to start uh, uh, ending the duplication, Alan. I mean, the biggest budget saving in New South Wales is to end the duplication whereby the New South Wales government, and Matt Keane in particular, thinks they can save the planet with green energy programs. If we halt the transition to a so-called green energy economy, we abolish all the green energy programs, you save $20 billion, $20 billion on the New South Wales budget, a massive saving. You can clear the deficit and start paying down debt. So we're not gonna save the planet, in New South Wales, but we can save the budget, we can save the electricity grid, we can save the education system if you vote the right way on the 25th Okay, well, let's just talk about that quickly because but people don't understand how the system works, right? You are the leader in the upper house. All right, now you have candidates, One Nation candidates also in the lower house. That's pretty easy for people to understand in the lower house. But what you're saying, are you not, that if the Mark Latham ticket gets enough people in the upper house, 
you can block this kind of legislative nonsense. Is that not the point that you're making? Yeah, if you've got a Labor-Green coalition in the lower house and the, and the Greens will want uh, drug legalisation, gender fluidity teaching in schools, faster rush to renewable energy, close down coal and gas yesterday, if Minns is forced into a uh, minority government, he'll turn to the Greens first and foremost. That'll be their agenda. The only way you can stop that is one nation in the upper house, voting one for our group, Group Q on the upper house ballot paper, join the queue to vote for Group Q, that's us, one nation. And in the lower house, still vote for us, uh, number one, because we've got some good candidates in some key seats. There's some polling results that show that there, there could be an upset where we're kind of like, uh, you know, 100 to 1 at the races, but every now and, they get, now and then they get up, Alan, as yes. you know. Yes. Just one thing before you go to prove the validity of this. What was the piece of legislation that you fought against in the upper house? And I think I'm right in remembering uh, in, in repeating that you actually moved over 90 amendments. 85 amendments, Matt Keane's electricity roadmap. We sat the parliament up all night and I said to them, and we're going to have 85 division, you're going to sit here all night and we're going to make the point time after time, which we did. Two things will happen because of Matt Keane's, uh, Matt Keane's mad rush to 100% renewables. First is you'll close down the coal-fired power stations early, and that's happened to Araring to close in two years' time, Liddell next month, and that's why we're going to have blackouts. You lose 25% of electricity generation in New South Wales when Araring closes. So, unfortunately, that forecast has come about. And the second thing that'll happen is you won't have the backup power in place, the pumped hydro, the gas peaking plants, to support the renewables for when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing. And that too has come to pass. This massive delay on Malcolm Turnbull's $20 billion white elephant, Snowy 2.0, and can you get it into the grid with the Hume Link, which is massively controversial south of Goulburn, and Chris Bowen stuffing around with hydrogen at the Curry gas peaking plant, it's delayed 18 months as well. So it was always a recipe for disaster. One Nation stood there. We made them sit until dawn, had breakfast, and then came back again to make our points. They wouldn't listen. And unfortunately, the people of the state will suffer because these predictions have come to pass. The electricity bills have gone through the roof and the lights are going to go off. Well done. I should say to our viewers, that's Mark Latham, the leader of One Nation, I should say to our viewers that we have made contact with Dominic Pirate and Chris Minns to come on this program. My staff, all that my staff have received in response is rudeness. Of course, they most probably can't front to handle the kind of questions which Mark Latham has no difficulty answering. I'm just saying to viewers out there, and I've been around a long time, this man is the most formidable figure in the New South Wales Parliament. He needs your electoral support. Mark, I thank you for talking with me, but above all else, I thank you for what you bring to the Government of New South Wales. Well, thanks, Alan. We're fighting hard and we won't give up. You know, these issues are too important. So yeah, anyone absolutely. who votes for One Nation, you'll get value for your vote. Patrick. I guarantee you that. Good on you, mate. You're not 100 to 1 either, I can tell you. There he is, the One Nation no, leader, no, <laughs> Mark Latham. I know the word scandal is overused, but it surely is a scandal that amidst everything that the battler in Struggle Street has to endure, think interest rates increasing 10 times since last May. Remember what I've said about that? I believe that fixed assets should have a fixed interest rate applied to them. The house is a fixed asset. So that mortgagees wouldn't have to wait on the first Tuesday of every month for dispiriting news that interest rates were going to go up and more money would have to be found to keep the banks at bay when the wage stays the same. But that must be beyond the capacity of charmers and others to understand. 
But on top of that, energy prices dramatically affecting every branch of Australian economic life, such that manufacturers are moving offshore. Families don't have that luxury, so the electricity bill goes up for families and for business. Why? And we've referred to that earlier with Mark Latham. Why? Well, we apparently have this scourge called carbon dioxide. As you know, it's the source of all plant life. I repeat, for the millionth time, carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere, 0.04%. I say this in my sleep. I'm not prepared to be one of the mugs who falls into line believing this is affecting the planet. Follow Greta Thunberg if you like, but count me out of being a disciple of a poorly educated schoolgirl with problems of her own. 0.04%. And of that, only 3% worldwide is man-made. And little old Australia is responsible for 1.3% of 3% of 0.04%. I'm sorry, you'd have to have rocks in your head to believe that the carbon dioxide is the problem. But instead of taking advantage of our massive energy resources, we export our coal to other countries so they can have cheap energy because we're going to stop climate change. Believe that and you must believe there are tooth fairies at the bottom of the garden. China couldn't care less. Let me tell you this, last year, China approved the construction of another 106 gigawatts of coal-fired power capacity, the equivalent of two large coal-fired power plants per week. It's highest in seven years. Now, forget the business about the equivalent of two large coal power plants a week. 106 gigawatts approved construction has to be weighed against Australia's total consumption of coal-fired power in a year. 25 gigawatts. 25. China are constructing, over and above what they have, another 106 gigawatts. And many of these projects have their approval permits fast-tracked to be constructed in a matter of months. And they are coal-fired. Where does the coal come from? Well, China did have sanctions on Australian exports, but last month, one month, we sent 72,000 tonnes of coal to China after China's zero COVID policy. They're trying to kickstart the economy. How did China do that? With cheap, reliable and available energy, our coal provides it for China. We have people in Canberra, Bowen & Co, who are acting out the opposite. As one of the finest meteorologists in the world, Professor Richard Lindzen has argued, and remember Perrottet stood up there on Sunday saying, think of your kids. It's just rhetoric. Professor Lindzen has said, about all of this nonsense of demonising coal and believing solar panels and wind turbines will do the job when countries like China are just laughing at us. Professor Lindzen said, quote, what we were believing our grandchildren, think of our kids, Mr. Perrottet, what we'll be leaving our grandchildren is not a planet damaged by industrial progress, but a record of unfathomable silliness, as well as a landscape degraded by rusting wind farms and decaying solar panels, unquote. In his book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, I've referred this, to you, this book to you before, Michael Schellenberger, a world-renowned environmental activist, now for 20 years, 20 years, he once went along with all this stuff, but now in the book, he admits he's seen the stupidity of it, and in his book, he apologises to the world for, quote, the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years. He wrote, it's not even our most serious environmental problem. 
once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped, unquote. What Australia needs is a fair dinkum Liberal Party, a fair dinkum coalition that'll argue the truth, argue the truth and dismantle the rubbish that we're being fed by people like Chris Bowen and Matt Keane. As Schellenberger says, quote, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped. Well, you've got to say this with a smile on your face, but for the latest in Britain, which is almost the material of a reality TV show, let's go to the man who seems to know everyone in politics, the political editor of Express Online, David Maddox. You can read David, he is always up to date and amazingly well-informed. As I said, he knows everybody. You can read him at express.co.uk. <laughs> and David joins me. David, we seem to be asking the same questions every week, but is Rishi <laughs> Sunak still in trouble? Do you know, um, I, I just filed a piece last night saying that he's got seven days to sort this out to end his Boris problem. And uh, I think today today is the budget, uh, and that will go a long way to decide whether he's still in trouble or not, actually. But on that budget, for example, I mean, a lot of the detail, as here, is already known. Uh, a $5 yeah. billion pound rise in defence spending. I mean, in this mm -hmm. climate, is that enough to keep the walls from the door, $5 billion? Uh, the, uh, it didn't land particular, uh, particularly well with uh, Conservative MPs uh, who wanted about twice that much. I think the bigger concern was that he's committed to go to 2.5% of GDP on defence spending. But he's not said when that will happen. And most of the Conservative Party wanted to go to 3%, yep, so a yep, lot more. Yeah. And what about the status of the planned tax increases? I mean, he was the Chancellor. I mean, the corporate tax rate to go from 19p to 25p oh, in the pound. It's hardly Conservative Party policy, but as I said, this bloke was the Chancellor who proposed the increases. Uh, wouldn't the rank and file want him to scrap that and will he? Absolutely. I think that could be the key issue today. If he scraps that, then he's home and dry. Um, he can say he's listened to his colleagues and all the rest of it. If he goes ahead with it, I think there'll be a lot of discontent. It's it's already acting as a major disincentive for companies to invest in this country. Yeah, I know. And um, but, it's, but, it's really problematic, actually. Really will, problematic. He, will, he, will he chuck the football to Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, and say, oh, well, we'll postpone it? I mean... Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the most likely option, but... The, the concern varies, but the threat of it is the problem. So uh, AstraZeneca, which uh, is a big kind of medical research company that developed the one of the vaccines, if you remember, they've just uh, decided to locate in Ireland because of a much lower corporation yeah, tax rate and the threat that, you know, 19 to is going to go up to 25. So this, these sorts of decisions are happening all the time. And the UK is losing out quite badly as a result. So see, if, they, uh, if they don't actually withdraw the threat of it altogether, they're, uh, it's going to continue. See, I'm a long way away here, but the impression I get from, and I try to read everything, I mean, things like the cost of living, inflation, miles behind at the polls. Mm. I don't think get the impression that he is inspiring the rank and file to understand that he's got answers to these things, does he? 
No, not entirely. But what he's done is he's he's answered a lot of the kind of questions of the discontents on his backbenchers. And you've got to remember that um, if he's going to be removed as leader, it's got to come through the MPs. If Boris is going to come back, it's got to come through the MPs. Mm. And the stuff he's done on the migration bill uh, and and actually the Brexit sort of deal with Northern over Northern Ireland has done enough, I think, to you know, neutralise, if you like, the mm. Uh, mm. Uh, threat of a yeah, rebellion on be, the back bench. Yeah, in the end, more, it's not party members who are going to More worries about his MP. party. More worries about his party than about governing or the Labor Party. I mean, uh, the business about the Northern Ireland deal, I mean, how many critical constituents are really absorbed by the Northern Ireland protocol? But if exactly. Boris is going to vote against it, or if he may not vote at all, but the political question, I think you've raised this, will the Prime Minister need Labor votes to get him over the line, in which case that would be the death of him, wouldn't it? That would be, yes, that would. And that would be very problematic indeed. I, I, my reading of it is that he won't at the moment, but you never quite know. Mm. Um, and and to, uh, going back to the budget, if, if that goes wrong today, that might inspire a few more yes. to... You can't be raising revenge, taxes so. and growing the economy. You can't raise taxes exactly, and grow the economy. Exactly. Then you've got the, the trial. The budget's a big one. The, the then you've got the Privileges Committee, the trial of Boris, starting its inquiry into whether Boris misled Parliament over <laughs> Partygate. Has the thing we talked about last week, I find this amazing. And, you know, I've been in politics longer than you have. As the author of that Partygate report, Sue Gray, has she, now, given that she mm. knows everything about the Conservative Party, the inside out of the Conservative Party, and then, of course, Simon Case stopped her from taking the job with Kemi Badenoch. Yeah. So she then, well, allegedly joined Keir Starmer. Has she started with Keir Starmer? Uh, not yet, no. They're still waiting for that to be approved. I mean, it may be months or even years before she's allowed to do it. So... Wouldn't Sunak say, wouldn't Sunak say to Simon Case, the, the secret, cabinet secretary, listen, sorry, I know you didn't approve of Sue Gray, but I'm overruling you. I'm saying she's not going, she's staying here. Well, the trouble is she's resigned from the civil service. Oh, she's now, resigned? Very, very she's actually resigned from the civil service. Right. Uh, uh, she resigned uh, just over a week ago. Right. Uh, the issue is that civil servants aren't able to walk straight into other jobs until they've been approved to do that uh, because uh, because of, you know, lobbying interests and all yes. the rest of it. Yes. So she's probably looking at a delay of at least six months, maybe two years, up to two years before she's allowed to work for Keir Starmer. That's so it's... Astonishing. Um, but, I mean, yes, but this goes down, back... To the problem. I mean, it was a real blunder from Sunak, I think. Yeah. Is to say, look, look, Simon, we're going to we're going to uh, let her be uh, Kimmy Badenoch's chief civil servant in this department. Keep your hands off. You know? How do you how do you read the view of what we call the red wall seats up there in the north that Boris won? They don't mm. like what's happened to Boris, and quite frankly, I mean, it's piddling stuff, really. But what is the reaction, and how many of those? exist in the Tory party who say, we don't like what's happened and we're not going to guarantee what we might do next? There, there are a few. And, and actually, I think the Boris issue is a very tricky one for Sunak. You know, he's already come under pressure. Uh, he's been accused of, of trying to stitch up the process and actually working with 
people on the Privileges Committee to ensure Boris is is done in as such. I'm not entirely sure that's true, but it's uh, but the suspicion is is there. A lot of people think that he should intervene and basically stop this entire process. Although last time I tried to do that for a senior Conservative MP, it led to their downfall in the polls. Yeah. So, um, a mess. you know, who knows? It's a, mess. But, but it's, it, it's a problem one for him. Did someone tell you that? Did badly, someone tell you this? Gonna... They, did someone tell you they thought this privileges committee inquiry was a stitch up just to get Boris? Yeah, a lot of people do. A lot of people do, and. And actually, the bigger problem is the membership of the party. Yeah. Uh, than the, but there's enough MPs who think that, but the membership of the party are really angry about it. On the plus side for Rishi Sunak, on the plus side for the Prime Minister, yeah. does the bill to stop the boats and stop, which is much the same thing, it's a bit of a mirror of what happened here in Australia, to stop illegal migration, has that helped Prime Minister? I would have thought that would have widespread support, would it not? Yeah, and that's, that's been a real turning point for him, I think. And that's what might guarantee him to the next election, is that uh, it, it, it's, it's really pleased uh, the Tory backbenchers. But, I mean, there's still big question marks over whether this will work because yes. of all the various yes. European Court of Human Rights nonsense. Uh, but the one good thing about it is it's created a big wedge issue with Labour. It's yes. something they can get at the doorsteps. Yeah, absolutely. About. Now, listen, what's happening with this leadership of Scotland? Uh, Stur uh, Sturgeon's <laughs> gone. She's just a pain in the neck, Sturgeon. But is this bloke, Humza Yousaf, who's 37, yes. is he going to be the new Scottish leader? I mean, you can't say too much about the opposition, but the finance minister, Kate Forbes, is 32, for God's sake. And there's a third candidate, 38. But I don't know what worldly experience these people have. But we've said previously, this Yousaf, when he was a transport minister in 2016, I might add he was only 30 then, he got into trouble for driving his car without insurance and he blamed it on the breakup of his marriage. Then in 2020, remember a couple of weeks ago, we showed you the, the pictures. He was the Justice Secretary who made a speech in the Parliament saying that Scotland was too white. And he mentioned the word white 19 times in 55 seconds. And I played that piece to you a couple of weeks ago. Uh, is this bloke going to get the leadership? It looks like it. The, uh, the SNP establishment have all gone in behind him. And uh, it, I, I can tell you the unionist parties are <laughs> absolutely joyous about it. Yes. Captain Calamity getting to, in charge of a ship, good ship SNP. Yes. Uh, I mean, talk about reality TV shows. This one's this been a humdinger. Well, a Scottish, Labor figure, a Scottish Labor figure has said everything Humza touches turns to SHIT. And an SNP yeah. member... An SNP member who's backing the 32-year-old Kate Forbes said, if Humza's elected, we'll be facing a wipeout at the next election. He would be a disaster. So basically, yeah. you are saying this Humza, Yousaf, is going to be the next leader replacing the pain in the neck sturgeon. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. And the thing is, as well, is that sturgeon clearly... She hasn't officially backed him, but she clearly wants him. He's her hand-picked uh, successor I suppose as well. That she would I mean, think... There's arguments that this is yet another stitch-up, but we, yeah. we, we, we will see. Sturgeon would, I mean, think, Sturgeon would think this bloke would make her look good. 
Look, the BBC, <laughs> what's the latest with this Gary Lineker and the BBC and its flagship football show match of the day? Lineker's going to return after being suspended last Friday for using Twitter mm. to compare the language used to launch the government's new asylum policy to the rhetoric of Nazi-era Germany. What, David, mm. what is the footballer doing talking about the government's asylum policy? Well, this is a big problem. I mean, as you know, the BBC is a state-funded, taxpayer-funded broadcaster, which is a nonsense in this day and age, but uh, it still is. And uh, it has a duty to impartiality uh, amongst its presenters uh, on news and uh, political correspondence and things, but also amongst people who are its you know, ambassadors and represented. And Lineker is one of those. Lineker has been abusing this rule for years, actually, this was the most egregious example, but right. uh, BBC suspended him and then apparently just did a massive retreat on it after a lot of pressure. But well, I mean, uh, I can tell you, I think this fellow presenters, and, fellow presenters and commentators refused to work at the weekend. Yeah. So, what there's going to be an internal review into the corporation's social media guidelines. I mean, the question many are asking. Is do people still watch the BBC, David? <laughs> it seems to offer no, the same bias as our ABC. What? Not a lot of people watch it anymore, and not a lot of people actually watch his his show match of the day anymore. It's not, you know, no. viewer figures have tumbled. Like it's oh, yeah. boring. I mean, I mean, it's really you'd boring. Have to be dumb. I mean, you you'd have, you'd have to be dumb to compare Rishi Sunak's policy following the Australian example that said aimed yeah. at stopping boats carrying illegal would-be migrants across the English Channel with the appalling crimes of Nazi Germany. You wonder what school is Linick yeah. went to? Accusing the Home Secretary, accused the Home Secretary, Sumila Braverman, of using, quote, language that's not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 1930s. I don't know what history yeah. lessons, hey, what history lessons he's been doing. So where to for Lineker and the BBC? Well, hopefully this will uh, begin the process of the end of the licence fee and stop us having to pay for these, these people. It's about time uh, the, the whole wretched thing has broken up, in my view, and uh, privatised. Uh, yeah, absolutely, that's absolutely. Another battle. All right, I mean, David. Now, listen, good to talk on. to you. But today, in a few hours' time, you've got the budget. And the big thing is, what's Sunak going to do about the increase in corporate tax, corporate tax rate that he brought on as Chancellor? His prime ministership most probably rises and falls according to whether he hangs on to it or gets rid of it. Is that a fair assessment? I think so, yes. I think so. Uh, he may try and fudge it in some way or other, but uh, I think I think this is the big issue. This is a Good key on you. issue. Great to talk to you, David. You can't, I can't talk to you these days without a smile on my face. It's like reality TV. <laughs> it's David Maddox. He knows everybody, the political editor. But, well, you must have spoken to all of these people. Like, you do know everybody. So someone you must know knows what Seneca is going to do. Have you got any inside info what he's going to do about this corporate tax rate? The, the latest I heard was that it was going to get delayed, but Oh, Who knows? I'm give not, it to, give it to Jeremy not, Hunt I'm to deal certain. with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there he is. Well, if that if that's the latest with David Maddox, that is what will happen. I can tell you, he is the political <laughs> editor of Express Online. You can read David at express.co.uk, and he'll bring you up to date on everything political in Britain. See you next week, David. Cheers, on. There he is, David Maddox. Let me make a further point on this submarine issue. Disturbingly, right now. Australia has no long-range striking capabilities. 
as well. We've been left with old, technologically obsolete diesel submarines after years of inaction. In fact, when I interviewed Greg Sheridan last year, the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper, who writes with great clarity on issues of national security, Greg argued, quote, of all nations in the Western Alliance, we are long-term amongst the most vulnerable and the least prepared. And he went on, I quote, not one of our services, Navy, Air Force or Army, has any strategic strike power. Every one of our major defence programs, he said, is in disarray or scheduled to deliver capability so far into the future that it's in the realm of science fiction, unquote. Well, that's what this AUKUS deal seeks to address. And remember, while Albo dominates the picture, well, the pictures, aren't they? They're everywhere. And the headlines, it was Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton who were the architects of this initiative. Albo, to his credit, and the Labor Party are backing it, though, as you've heard, Paul Keating has valid arguments in opposition and they should be heard and debated. The miracle is that the Labor Party is in support of the deal in spite of their past opposition to anything nuclear. Nonetheless, as things stand today, we have no way of protecting the critical shipping routes to our north on which we rely for practically everything from fuel to fertiliser to steel to pharmaceuticals, even to paper. And we have no way to protect our power as a sovereign middle power in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, the bad news is, thanks to our incompetent political establishment, both sides, I might add, this lack of capability will continue for at least another decade. Under this new AUKUS submarine deal signed on Monday, Australia won't get its first Virginia-class submarine until, if you're lucky, 2033, meaning we're virtually defenceless for another decade or relying on clapped out Collins-class submarines. We need to remember in all of this that the cost is monumental. The AUKUS submarine deal will cost the taxpayer $400 billion in today's money and never have these cost estimates been accurate. However, history may suggest that we've been ripped off. The proof? In 2014, the former Prime Minister, yes, the much maligned Tony Abbott, was negotiating with the now late Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo to purchase 12 affordable, cutting-edge, off-the-shelf Japanese Soyu submarines. The kicker? The Japanese subs would have been delivered by the mid-2020s. The cost would have been $20 billion. Assuming a cost blowout, say, of 50%, which is common with these sorts of large defence projects, the Abbott deal with the Japanese would have been 12 times cheaper than the current AUKUS deal. The most shameful part is that if we'd listened to Abbott, we would have had our first submarine off the shelf by next year or the year after. Why is all this forgotten? Is it because it was Tony Abbott? Because the consequences are profound. Not only has the taxpayer been seemingly ripped off, but Australia's defence capability has been compromised. After green nutter Malcolm Turnbull and his quote-unquote modern liberal mates like Christopher Pine knifed Tony Abbott eight years ago, Turnbull scrapped the Japanese submarine contract and sided with the French submarine deal, which we all know is a rip-off and would have delivered us technologically obsolete submarines by the mid-2030s. The Liberal Party then umdrawed for five and a half years until Scott Morrison sensibly cancelled the French deal and signed AUKUS with the intention of acquiring American nuclear submarines by the mid-2030s. All this endorsed by the Labor Party. 
They take the credit. Morrison and Dutton did the work. But if we'd listened to Tony Abbott, we would have had brand new cutting edge Japanese submarines 10 years earlier than what we can expect now. We would have closer ties with our Japanese allies who have as much to lose as Australia if China made a move in the Indo-Pacific. The taxpayer would have been saved $300 billion. Oh dear, I suppose there is a silver lining to all this. Although it will cost us more, at least we're getting American nuclear subs instead of Turnbull's French diesel submarines, which then would have had to be converted to nuclear. Never, ever done before. So it's an important deal here, this August deal, but remember, it's only signed paper. We've got a long way to go. Hopefully with someone like Richard Miles around, not short of brains and not wedded to the limelight, hopefully we can now get a wriggle on. Well, before we go now, I told you at the beginning of the program, something special and different, very different. The coronation of King Charles will take place on May, 8, uh, May 6 at Westminster Abbey. Andrew Lloyd Webber, the man behind such theatre hits as The Phantom of the Opera, Evita and Cats, has been commissioned by the King to pen a coronation anthem, where the words will be slightly adapted from Psalm 98. He has scored it for the Westminster Abbey Choir and organ, the ceremonial brass and orchestra. However, amongst those chosen to perform, which includes the glorious baritone, Sir Bryn Terfel, is a magnificent South African soprano, Pretty Vendi. She's 38 years of age. She's already performed at the leading opera houses of the world, including La Scala and the Metropolitan Opera. Oddly enough, she learned opera at the age of 16 after seeing a British Airways TV advertisement that featured the flower duet from LACME. It has been one triumph after another since then. It is an extraordinary voice that would shatter glass. Well, here she is from the ballroom scene at the opening of Verdi's opera La Traviata. Now, Alfredo has professed his love for her and, in the early, and she has responded accordingly. And in the early hours of the morning, Alfredo happy, he leaves. But Violetta then is not sure. And she sings the aria Sempre Libra, set me free from this love affair. Little does she know that Alfredo is still in the garden. And in a faraway voice, as you'll hear, he responds to her confused emotions. This is singing of the very highest order. And this young woman has been commissioned by King Charles to sing in the coronation concert. Her name, Pretty Yendi.
Her name is Pretty Vendi, V-E-Y-V-E-N-D-E. It'll be a concert to end all concerts. King Charles has also requested a composition honouring his father, Prince Philip. And the palace says King Charles has commissioned the new music and shaped and selected the whole musical program for the service. I should point out the coronation concert will take place on the day after the coronation ceremony, but the musical talent of Pretty Yende will be there for the world to hear. And just before we go, talking about talent, it is the Golden Slipper Race meeting on Saturday at Rose Hill, Sydney. History will be made. I like Shinzo and Steel City, but it's very open and anything could win. And talking about winning tonight in Sydney, the NBL Grand Final between the Sydney Kings and the New Zealand Breakers. We love our New Zealand friends, but we always back the Aussies. So as they say, go the Kings. And that's it from me for tonight and for this week. You can listen to tonight's program and that beautiful music on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow morning. Oh, the music, it's ringing through my ears. Thank you for being with us. I hope you enjoyed the program. Email me. Come on, alanjones at adh.tv. I'll see you next week. I'm Alan Jones. Good night. <laughs>